Revelation 4, starting from verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I have heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was at it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature was the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord.
It's good to see everyone here today. Um, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors of the church, along with Steve, who is not here today because he's preaching at Providence Church, um, helping to guest preach there so that the pastor there can have a break. Uh, so if you can keep him in your prayers, uh, that'll be great. Uh, as Dan mentioned before the Bible reading, uh, we have just finished a sermon series from the, in the book of Job, uh, which we ran for six weeks. But before that, we began uh, the year looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, next uh, three chapters in a little bit in this three-week series, uh, and then we're going to go into the book of Ezekiel, right, which is um, a big, difficult book. We're going to spend 12 weeks there before we come back into the middle section of Revelation and then so on. Okay, So we're going to do Revelation, all of it, uh, in four parts over the year, and we're diving back in again today. Now, um, just a reminder that uh, there is an outline of the sermon available uh, to download from our church website. You can download the bulletin as well as the outline uh, each week. I think it's usually live by Saturday morning. Um, so if you, uh, it helps for you to download that, to print out, or to have it on your tablet to take notes. Uh, that's something that you could do. Uh, certainly, it helps me focus when I'm taking notes listening to sermons, uh, but that's uh, something that you can do. For now, please keep your Bibles open to Revelation 4. We'll be working through these two chapters. As you can probably tell from the reading, uh, there are a lot of details in this passage, uh, and we won't be able to cover all of it. All right? We'll be here for a few hours if we try to explain every single detail. But we will take in enough of the information, the detail, for us to be struck uh, by what this vision is really about. Um, but the best thing we can do now, besides having our Bible, which is God's Word open in front of us, is to go to Him in prayer, praying that His Spirit would speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you now giving you great thanks that you're a God who has not remained silent, but that you have spoken to us. You've revealed to us who you are and what your plans and purposes are in your world. We thank you that um, the series of Job which has finished shows us that you are in control, that your, your wisdom is unlimited, Uh, and ours is finite, and we don't see everything. But we do give you thanks that you reveal to us what we do need to know. You reveal to us enough for us to be able to understand who you are and what you are doing, to be able to trust you, to be able to live for you, to be able to see that there is meaning and purpose in life. As we come to this section of your word, we come with perhaps many different worries and anxieties and struggles. Perhaps we are facing hardship. Uh, and difficulties in life, or perhaps we find that we are compromising in our faith and our desire to walk uh, with Jesus and to live for him. Uh, However we come today, we pray that this vision would fill our hearts and minds, and it might really encourage us and spur us on. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I wonder in this room, who finds it hard to be motivated to do things that are important? Um, there are a lot of students here in this uh, room, so perhaps staying on task, right, doing your homework, doing your assignments is something that you find uh, very difficult to do. If you're a professional at anything, you're a professional procrastinator, all right? Who's that? So I know some of you, uh, you can confess your sins later on. Um, whether it's studying for exams or whether it's, it's just turning up every day at work, maybe you're a worker, and that motivation to, to be able to find uh, purpose and to be able to work with, with heartiness, it's just hard. Or maybe it's about keeping fit and staying healthy by watching what you eat and regularly exercising. Uh, you're about to, you know, you t- put it in your timetable to exercise, but then I'll just play a few more games. Right? I'll have a bit more sleep. 
Or perhaps it's to do with relationships. You know, we, we know it's important to grow relationships with uh, our parents or our siblings or, or our housemates. Uh, but we just, you know, there's lacking motivation. Perhaps there, there is a conflict in your family, on your friendships. And you're just not motivated to want to speak up and, and to go through all that ickiness of having to reconcile. You know, getting and staying motivated to do things that are important. That's so hard, isn't it, to have that motivation? And there's a whole industry that's actually devoted to helping people to be motivated and to stay motivated to achieve their goals. So if you're a worker, perhaps you're part of a company with all of its reward schemes and bonus packages. I know Singaporeans, they live for the announcement for how many months bonus you'll get for your work that year. We employ psychologists and personal trainers. Uh, we have accountability partners and apps on our phone. We have life coaches and personal mentoring. We have self-help gurus with all of their books and their TED Talks and their workshops and conferences. In the United States, in 2016, the motivational industry was worth $10 billion and is projected to be worth $14 billion by next year. $4 billion worth of growth in six years. It's a lot of money to be throwing at the problem of a lack of motivation, isn't it? Now, we struggle to stay motivated in many things, and I think that's no different to our Christian faith, isn't it? Our Christian walk. Putting God first in our lives, worshipping Him with our undivided loyalty, putting our trust in Jesus and in His, um, in His direction for our lives, seeking to obey Him and to put away our sins, to live in obedience and in godliness, to serve and keep being generous with our time and money and energy to the work of the Lord. I wonder whether you're finding it hard to be or to stay motivated to, to do all these things. Now, we're diving back into Revelation for this short series from chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 8. And as we remind ourselves that Revelation is given uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a gift, really, to the church uh, back in the first century and today. If we remember the church back in the time when this was written, uh, probably not long after Jesus died, 10, 20, 30 years, they were facing heavy persecution. Right? There were many hardships in being a Christian back in those days living in the Roman Empire. For the Christians back then, when they looked out into their world, right, what kind of world did they see? Right? It's a soul world that seemingly was under the eternal rule of Rome. Almighty Rome, who in a way ruled and influenced and impacted every aspect of their life. Their religious life was under pressure right, to worship uh, Caesar, the imperial cult, or to worship the gods of Rome, Zeus and Apollos and others. They were under economic pressure, right, in their workplaces to, to join up with, with guilds, right, that worship other gods. They faced social pressures from family and friends, right, to, to conform to their ways and, and to not believe in Jesus. And they also saw that perhaps within themselves there was all these uh, desires to live like everyone else did, to live a comfortable life free from the persecution that came with being a committed and a convicted Christian. And then they also went to churches where there were a lot of problems. We saw in chapter 2 and 3, right, in the letters to the churches, that within the church there were false teachers with their heresy, right, teaching all these false teachings as well as influencing them to live unholy, ungodly lives and saying that was okay as a Christian, right, to believe these other truths and to live this kind of dodgy way. 
they saw people falling into compromise and falling away altogether. And so this vision, this revelation was given to John to give to the church. And it began with the glorious grand vision of Jesus Christ, right, the uh, eternal, almighty King and Savior. And then it followed with two chapters, seven letters to the seven churches, to all Christians, with the command, the encouragement to conquer. Remember? Seven letters to conquer, to hold fast to their faith, to endure through the persecution, to get rid of and to never fall to the false teachers and their unholy influences, to repent and to grow in their passion, their zeal for Jesus and for good works. Right? The summation of it all is conquer. Christians, conquer. That's the one instruction that sums it all up. But will the church, going through such hardship, tempted by compromise, will they have the motivation to conquer? Will we have the motivation to conquer? How will I stay motivated to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep living out my faith? How will I stay motivated when I, when I see there's so much mess in my own life, so much compromise, so much struggle? When maybe I see the church and it's, it's full of uh, division and hypocrisy. When I look into the world and all of its pressures and oppos- oppositions, what will motivate me to keep going? Would I see that maybe it's easy just to give in and, or to give up? Oh, it can be very tempting, isn't it, to give up on trusting God and trusting His Son, Jesus, to, see, just to stop you know, seeing God really as deserving of all of our worship, to see maybe it's not worth trusting Jesus so much, to not have to work so hard at, at, at really living out the godly life full of service to the gospel. And so Jesus gives this vision in chapter 4 and 5, right? Another vision, another way to see life. It's sorely needed for the early church, and I think it's still sorely needed for us. Chapters 4 and 5 gives us the motivation, I think, to live out the command to conquer as Christians. This is the most important, the most beneficial, beneficial motivational tool that any $14 billion industry can provide. A different version of real, reality. Right? As we see in chapter 4, verse 1, John is brought up uh, into heaven to see the reality there is more that is going on. It's a, a normally unseen world that John is being shown. But once in a while, in God's goodness, he reveals a, a vision of, his, of, of heaven, doesn't he? If you remember back to uh, chapter 1 of Job, right? we are given an insight as readers into the heavenly court. Job and his friends, they never see what happens there, but we, we get an insight into, into God's dealings in the heavenly court right? with, with the devil. We see in, in places like 2 Kings, if you know 2 Kings, Elisha, the people of Israel were surrounded by their enemies, but a servant boy is given a vision of the heavens opening and the chariots of God, right, the warriors of God, showing that God is protecting the city. Once in a while, we get a glimpse of heaven, and this is what we see here. A heavenly reality that we must see to understand what is truly going on, to truly motivate us to keep living for Jesus. Now, the reality that John sees, the reality of heaven is dominated by a throne, right? Dominated by a throne. Have a look. Chapter 4, verse 2. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. 
I see a throne in heaven with one seated on a throne. And as you read on from the next few verses, we see that every single thing revolves around the throne. Every single thing revolves around the one that is seated on that throne. Right? There is so much detail that's in this passage, but they all begin with a prepositional phrase. Right? For the English grammar geeks here, you'll know what I'm talking about. Right? It's, everything is around the throne. Everything comes out from the throne. The throne is right at the center of this vision. The throne and the one on it. Now, the details of the, the things around it are really drawn from the rest of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Let me give you a quick word about how we should read our Bibles, all of it, including the Old Testament, because the Old Testament especially forms the backdrop, right? the, 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 the word pictures and the images and the, the themes and the topics that are built and developed and fulfilled in the New Testament and especially here in Revelation. Right? All these things that we see here, they don't just come out of the blue. They reflect something that has happened in the past. They are a fulfillment of something that has been brought up in the past. Who exactly is on the throne up until verse 8 is not actually told to us. But at verse 8, it makes it clear, right? It is the Lord God Almighty, God the Father. But for now, from verse 2 to 7, what's more important is the vision and not the voice. Okay, It's the vision and what, not the voice. The picture is what we're meant to take in. And, it, and it's got a, a very incredible significance, the picture that we see from verses 2 to 7. Now, firstly, the one on the throne is shown to be at the center of all rule, right? He's at the center of all rule. Uh, firstly, we're taught his appearance, right? He's got the appearance of these precious stones. And once again, if you were to do a quick uh, search on your Bible software on the internet, you can look at these uh, stones and where they come before. And they symbolize, you know, dazzling beauty and glory. And they're especially associated with kings in the Old Testament. They express majesty and rule. So the precious stone makes this one on the throne looks like a king. And then in verse 4, he is presented as the one who is the king of kings, the ruler of rulers. Because around him and subordinate to him, under him, are 24 thrones, and on each throne is an elder with a crown, right? Wearing white garments. White, a symbol of purity or victory. More likely victory, I guess, in the context of Revelation. They are crowned, it symbolizes a king, and they're on their throne, right? So it'd be pretty clear who they are. They are rulers that surround and are subordinate to the one that is on the center throne. Now, we're not entirely sure who the 24 elders are. You can go and do your research and commentaries. There are a few options. 24 sounds like 12 plus 12, which obviously are very significant numbers. It could represent the 12 heads uh, representatives of the Old Testament people of God, you know, like the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the 12, other 12 are like the New Testament apostles representing the New Testament people of God. It could be that. It could be that the 24 uh, elders represent, um, you know, angelic uh, beings uh, like we see in the heavenly court uh, in uh, Job 1 and in some of the Psalms. You know? Or they could be this kind of spiritual beings that represent all of the powers in heaven and on earth. You know, like in Ephesians, we talk about the principalities and powers of the world. Uh, maybe these are spiritual beings that represent right, all rule in heaven and on earth. We're not sure. The Bible doesn't really tell us exactly. But what we, can really say, what we can say for certain is that they sit on thrones, they surround the throne, they surround and are subordinate to the one that is on the center throne. And then later on in verse 10, we say these rulers, these elders, these 24 elders, they take off their crowns and they cast it 
before the one in the center. Clearly, that's a demonstration of how they submit themselves. They worship the one who is the king of kings, the ruler of rulers. And so the first picture we see is God at the center of all rule, the ruler of rulers. But he's also, as we see from verse 5, the one who is the center of all creation, or the center of all creation. We see that the creation signs, they emanate out from the throne, right? Verse 5, you have a lightning that flashes, you've got thunder that rumbles and, and, and peals of thunder, they just come out from this throne. And if you know your Bibles, once again, they're like cosmic signs, right, that represent God's divinity, God's um, power and presence, They are, are in a way, the heavens declaring, right, the glory and the greatness of God, as the psalmists say. These signs show you the glory of God. And then we see the sea, right? It's a picture of rage and chaos, usually in the Bible, right? You've got Jonah, right, the sea. You've got Paul, right, going on his journey and being shipwrecked. We see um, in Job, if you remember that that middle section, that really long section where where God talks about, you know, were you there when I did all this? And he described the great sea and the the Leviathan, the giant monster of the sea. The sea was a symbol of chaos and all that is wrong with the world, right? The world in a mess. But here, before her creator, it is calm and crystal clear, a glass Right, the sea in submission to God. And then around the throne, besides the 24 thrones and the 24 elders that sit on them, are four creatures, one on each side, right, front, left, right, back. Now, the number four in the Bible, once again, is symbolic, uh, I think, for creation, all of creation. So you've got the four corners of the world, right, all of the world. You've got the four winds of the world. And here we've got the four creatures symbolizing all created beings. And they're quite symbolic, really. The lion, you know, the, the king of all wild animals. You've got the ox, you know, the, the chief of all domesticated animals. You've got the eagle, right, the, the ruler of the skies. And of course, you've got man representing all of mankind. And what does John see? You put all this together, what does John see? We see the throne, and we see God on his throne. We see God at the center of all rule, the ruler of rulers. We see God as the center of creation in control, and in charge of all rule and all creation. And just in case the vision isn't clear enough, the significance of the vision isn't clear enough, well, the voice will tell us very clearly, right? The four creatures, all of creation, cries out in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. The description of God from Isaiah 6, right? Holy, being utterly set apart, utterly and perfectly pure, totally and completely in power, and, and, and almighty is God, and eternally so, right? Who was and who is and who is to come, has always been holy and powerful, is always holy and powerful, and will always be holy and powerful. Now, the, the 24 elders, they cast their crowns down on the ground, and then they too join in the declaration of the worthiness of God for worship. Right? Worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will that existed and were created. 
the creator and sustainer of all things. And so the vision and the voice, they match, right? He is the one at the center of all rule. He's the one at the center of all creation. So what? All right, so what? So what does all this mean? Well, he means that he's perfectly and powerfully in charge and in control. He is perfectly and powerfully in charge and in control. Now, if you were the first century church, you were going through persecution and hardship, if you're being tempted to compromise, how do you think seeing this vision would have impacted you? How does it impact you now, right? Sitting in the 21st century and experiencing perhaps our own hardships and sufferings and compromise. For them, they saw Rome's power. They assumed, they thought Rome was eternal. They thought that Rome was in control and that Rome was in charge. And in, and in many ways, from an earthly vision and an earthly experience, it was true. But God so graciously wants to show them a different reality. He wants them to, to ask the question, like, what, what is our vision of life? Who do we think is on the throne? Who is in charge and in control? Who do we fear? Who do you trust? Who will you ultimately want to obey? Who is it that you want to live for? What is it that will shape and determine your decisions in the small and the big areas of life? Now, perhaps many of us know the right answer, the right theological answer. We all know that the answer should be God. It should be our Lord Jesus Christ. We know the right answer. I'm pretty sure almost every single person in this room, at least those that I know, would say that that's the right answer but why is it that on a day-to-day level, we don't actually want to do this? Our conviction and our motivation, our desire to worship and trust and to obey and to serve, why do we find that that's not there in the way that we want it to be? Now, if that's the case, then this vision is for you. Now, this is the vision that God gives, so graciously gives to us today for us to see that God is in charge and in control, that He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our obedience. Now, the throne room scene of chapter 4, it carries on into chapter 5. Same still, same scene, but now a crisis all right, uh, comes up, doesn't it? The throne room scene of chapter 4 shows God to be in control right, over all rule and over all creation, like the big picture. But the crisis here is to do with, is God in charge and in control in the small aspects of my life, in the right here and the right now, in our day-to-day lives, in the nitty-gritty of human experience and human history, does God have a plan and purpose? Uh, I think this, this, this crisis is about a sealed scroll, isn't it? Um, have a look at verse 1 and 2, right? 5, 1 and 2. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, on the back, uh, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, what is this crisis about? Well, there's a scroll, and it is perfectly sealed up, because the number seven is symbolic in Revelation of completeness. So it's completely, perfectly sealed. Now, in chapter 5, we're not told yet what the scroll is, but clearly the importance of this scroll isn't lost on the angels or on John. For the angels are freaking out who will open, and John is weeping, he's crying, right? He's so desperate 
for this scroll to be opened. Now, we can cheat a little bit and read on to chapter 6, because we're not cheating, right? We always read in context, so we should be reading on anyway. But as we read on to chapter 6, we realize that this scroll contains the purposes and plans of God in human history. It contains what God is doing and what God will do. And ultimately, in short, it contains God's salvation plan in human history. In a world of evil and sin and death, in the face of rebellion against God and opposition against the church like God's people, in our experience of brokenness and suffering in our day-to-day life, does God have a solution? Will God do something about it? Will He be able to achieve the resolution, the redemption, the salvation? Now, the first recipients of this book, as we've said a few times now, they lived in chaos and in confusion in a way that we probably don't experience today. They experienced such chaos and confusion. They were the early days of the church. They, you, you can imagine that they would, they would wonder, they would worry about how things would pan out. This unopened scroll represented uncertainty. Right? Is God actually in control and in charge? Is there anyone who can provide that certainty and comfort? Is there anyone worthy not just to reveal what God's plans are, but to fulfill it? Right? To, to actually be able to control it and to achieve it. And the answer, as we find out, is that there is one who is worthy. Read along, verse 5. And one of the others said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and, and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Well, who is worthy? Uh, the elders declare the one who is the lion of Judah. And once again, you've got to know your Old Testament. The Lion of Judah is a prophecy given in Genesis 49, right? Just before Jacob dies, he tells his son Judah that a lion, right, a king would come up from his line who will rise up to be a ferocious king and who will rule forever with an iron scepter. The root of David, a prophecy from Isaiah 11, right? A king, an eternal king in the line of David uh, who will bring in God's eternal kingdom. Right, that's who's coming, right? The Lion of Judah the root of David. And then we see, right? You can see the dramatic music building up, walking between, right, among the 24 thrones and and between the four beasts, he approaches the throne, the one that's the center of this room. And we're expecting to see Aslan, right, from Narnia or Simba, all grown up, right, from the Lion King. You know that that iconic scene, he's at the edge of the cliff, right, and he's like proud, raw. You're expecting a, a, a ginormous, Majestic roar, right? Symbolizing his control, his rule. But what we see instead is a dead lamb standing. Now, I'm going to put a picture up. I found one really cool, kind of anime looking sheep, right? With his sort of uh, electrified white fur and then like blood spurting out from his neck, right? Like spray it everywhere. But I thought it was a bit graphic. Like for our crowd. But you get the scene, right? It's a bit weird, isn't it? You're expecting the Lion of Judah, the, you know, the eternal king of God's kingdom, and you see a dead lamb standing. 
But of course, if you're a Christian, if you know the gospel, this is a very familiar picture. It's a symbol of the Lamb of God who came into the world. Right? The Lamb picture is something we've seen all through the Old Testament, and we see it when Jesus came onto the scene. John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb representing sacrifice, substitution, salvation. And of course, he's slain because he died. And of course, he's standing because he came back to life, the resurrection. Just in case, just so we know we're not making this up, this is exactly what the voice says, right? We see the vision and we get the voice, right? So verses 9 to 10, the new song that was sung saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The slain lamb standing is the one who died to ransom the people of God. It wasn't some accident of history that suddenly, oops, the Son of God died. Right? It wasn't something weird or strange that happened for no reason. People find this really difficult to really grasp. I mean, I'm on Facebook and I'm on quite a few forums, and, and Christians are mocked all the time. Right, for believing in a God who had to die, right? That God had to kill his son for us. Why couldn't God just forgive everybody who was so powerful if he's so loving? Right? They don't get why Jesus has to die. They think it's stupid, foolish, weak. Obviously, the first century church were tempted to think that as well, weren't they? However, we know that the death of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It is how evil and sin and death is defeated. It is how the salvation plan of God is achieved. A salvation plan that is not just available for, for the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, but for all people, as we hear, right? For, from every tribe, from every people group, from every nation. And this is what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll. Because he has conquered through opposition, he has conquered through persecution, he has conquered through death. He conquers death. And as we see the scrolls open, when we come back next week, or if you read on in chapter 6, we realize that this is actually is the paradigm. This is the pattern. This is the, the normal Christian life. As the seals get open, we see that in God's plans and purposes, the death and resurrection of Jesus matches up to the fact that we will suffer. We will, might even have to experience death in many different ways. But it is suffering that leads to victory. It is death that leads to resurrection life. And so, you know, the experience of the early church and all the chaos and the confusion and the pain and the hardships and the temptations, that's not abnormal. It's not God out of control. It is God not absent. It is not God being weak or powerless. It is squarely at the center of God's purposes and plans. It is squarely at the center of the Lamb's purpose and plans. And it is history that is already secured. Jesus has already conquered. Victory is guaranteed because the slain Lamb has already died and rose again. Whatever it is that the people of God are experiencing then and now today, it's all part of God's plan. Now that the slain lamb is worthy to open the scroll, <clears throat> it's arguably the single most important truth in all of human history. It is arguably the single most important truth 
right, the center of our human lives and of eternal life. Because this whole world exists for us to know God. And in the brokenness of our world, God's plan is that it is through Jesus that we will be saved, that we will be restored to the life that God has planned and purposed for us to live. There are many truths out there in the world. There are many truths that drive your life, I'm sure. Maybe the thing that drives you now is that next exam and the next assignment that you've got to get done. It could be the approval of your parents. It could be winning the heart of that guy and girl you've been chasing for. It could be a million things that has somehow become the center of your being and your purpose at the moment. But the reminder from the slain lamb being worthy to not just reveal but to fulfill the purposes and plans of God is that salvation, life in Jesus, is what matters most. Now the one that's worthy to fulfill God's plans and purposes is also the one that is therefore worthy of all of our worship. So let's look at the rest of chapter 5. Verse 8 to 10, we see the four creatures representing all created beings, We've got the 24 elders representing all rulers. They sing a new song declaring the worthiness of Jesus who died to bring salvation. And then we have verse 11 and 12. Suddenly out of nowhere or somewhere, angels appear. Myriads upon myriads, whatever that word means. Myriads is an old-fashioned word. Multitudes upon multitudes, masses upon masses, thousands upon thousands of angels. They join in the heavenly worship. It's like this huge worship service. Suddenly the decibel has gone up and has raised the roof, Right? the worthiness of Jesus to receive all expressions of worship. And you see, read it there, right? Power and wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing, all of the, 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 the weighty, worthy stuff of the world all belongs to Jesus. It's interesting when you compare this to, to the holy, holy, uh, the, the worship of God in chapter 4, right? This seems to be an even bigger expression of worship. And then in the final two verses, in verse 13 and 14, the glorious picture of chapter 4 and 5 is brought together. Because all creation, all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so basically absolutely everyone and everything, now give their worship to the one that's on the throne and the one who is the Lamb, who is now somewhere near the throne, if not on the throne, the Father and the Son. All of creation, everyone and everything are now worshipping the Father and the Son. And the heavenly representatives, the four creatures and the 24 elders, they say amen, right? Totally agree, absolutely in agreement with the worship. That's what amen means, right? It means truly, let it be. Now, this, this scene really reminds me uh, of my days watching Chinese movies, and especially set in the imperial times, you know, uh, when the, the height of the Chinese dynasty was, you know, uh, and, and there was always this scene where you know, the emperor would come out, and this is a scene from the last emperor, I think, and the whole of the middle kingdom, Zhongguo, right, will be there, symbolically. Right? The, 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 the courtyard is just filled with people, maybe on the battlefield. And then in unison, they all bow down. You know, the, the beautiful cinematography, they, they pan around, everyone, they're all bowing down. One sway, one sway, one, one sway. Yeah, anyone watch that kind of movies with me? Oh, I mean, it's like, I think it means um, long live the king. Is that right? One say, one say, one say, yeah, something like that. Okay. And, and you, it's so grand, right? Nothing compared to this scene where God, the Father, the Son, the Lamb is worshipped. Because that is middle kingdom, CGI, whatever it is, thousands of people worshipping. This is 
every single living creature in heaven and on earth. This is the worthiness of the Father and the Son of our worship. Motivation. Motivation is big business in our world because it is sorely needed. We are one unmotivated, unmotivated bunch. The seven letters to the seven churches urge all Christians to conquer, and yet we are one unmotivated bunch so much of the time, aren't we? What will keep us motivated when we're struggling, when things get hard, when there is opposition from family and friends, from the world, when we are starting to give in to compromise? What will motivate us when our faith starts to grow cold? When standing up for Jesus costs us. What we need, I think, is a throne room moment, a throne room vision, a long, hard look at life from heaven's perspective. God on the throne, in charge and in control. The Son, right, who reveals and fulfills God's salvation plan for human history. Absolutely vital that we see life from heaven's perspective. Because the usual thing we see is life from earth's perspective, isn't it? On the earthly plane only. We wake up in the morning, and then we, we look in the mirror, and then maybe it's a bit misty because we've had a hot shower. And then when we clear it, we see this haggard-looking person looking back at us, or maybe a beautiful person, right, depending on who you are. And you see around the, the room, and it's this grime, and there's dirt, and it feels like, like what life is like. It's messy. It's, it's yucky. It's difficult. And we've got to go to school again, we've got to go to work again, we've got to look after the kids again, we've got to prepare lunch again, we've got to read our Bibles again, we've got to go to the church again, we've got to go to fellowship group again, I have to think about evangelizing again. And we look at that and we just like, ah, oh, sien, right? Too tired, no motivation. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, let me just speak to you for a second first, right? I wonder whether you, you, you feel like life is like that, it's just this grind, and even if you are successful in this life, where is it all going to be? Maybe there is an inkling in you that surely there must be something more. Surely there must be something more to this life. No matter how down or dumps I am, no matter how successful I am, it feels empty, does it not? That is God's gift to show you that there is more to life. And this heavenly perspective, this opening of heaven, is to show you what is really real. Now just to help us to see that this heavenly perspective perspective isn't a myth or a legend or a fairy tale. The one who reveals this vision is the one who came from heaven into human history, into real time in a real place 2,000 years ago. Right? God is so good, he hasn't just spoken from up there and makes us think, oh, we just got to believe by blind faith. No, he came down to earth in a real place. He lived a real life. He died a real death on a real cross. He was buried in a real tomb, and then he really was risen, and now that real tomb is really empty. Right? His death and resurrection, the coming down of the Son of God into our world, is God so graciously saying that the perspective of heaven is real. And now that God has gone back, now Jesus has gone back into heaven and reveals this vision to us, is to show us that this is really what life is about. You know that desire for something more? Jesus fulfills that. He reveals that. Will you come and trust him today and worship him and see that life is worth living for him because this is what life is about. 
Now, for us as Christians, I think we so often lose motivation. Maybe God feels particularly absent. Jesus feels particularly distant from you at the moment. Or maybe the bright and attractive things of this world is drawing your attention more and more away from God and to those things, you know, your work, your relationships, the fun pleasures. Perhaps you're trusting more in yourself. Maybe you're getting more successful. You're achieving more in life. Or perhaps you're struggling to hold on to Jesus because of all the pain and all the hardships, mental health, depression, anxiety, broken relationships. Maybe you're struggling with some health concerns, cancer or something else. Maybe every day you wake up and you're finding it harder to want to read your Bible. Right? It feels like empty words on an empty page or you're finding it hard to pray. Maybe you're finding that skipping church is just much easier in this COVID situation, right? They have to sign up on Eventbrite before Thursday lunch. What's that all about? I just want to rock up. And if I can't rock up, then I'll just stay home. Well, you're here, so I'm preaching to the converted here. But maybe, you know, I was like, I don't want to host again, right? I hosted church last Sunday. I was so tired, right, at the end of it all. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder how all the other hosts are feeling. Maybe you're tired of hosting people. God bless you, by the way, hosts. And when you're tired of turning up, I, I can't be bothered replying even to the WhatsApp messages or the emails that Serene and my hosts send me. Everything's just so hard. What will motivate you to change? What will motivate you to change? You know, the message of today, the vision isn't try harder. Maybe you're expecting that. Maybe it's, come on guys, get more motivated, try harder. No, that is not the message of the vision of Revelation 4 and 5. It is not a message of try harder. It is a message of behold, receive, look and see, take it in, soak it in. God's gracious gift of the vision of reality with God in charge and in control, with Jesus in charge and in control. That's the message. It's an encouragement to motivate us. Not try harder, but look and see. Look and see and take it in. Now, many of us know a famous hymn. It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Right? This is uh, the chorus. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, we're going to sing the song um, in, a, in, a few, in a few moments when we finish this sermon, but we're going to change, sing the song with a word change. We're going to change the word dim, to clear. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely clear. Clear in the light of his glory and grace. That's the truth, isn't it? When we look properly at God, when we look properly at Jesus Christ, isn't what life about so clear? It's about living, knowing that God is in charge and in control. It's about living for God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ. That's what life is about. Life doesn't grow dim and strange and weird and and losing our way. It becomes clear. But it only becomes clear when we see this vision of God on his throne, when we see this vision of the slain land standing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you great thanks for the wonderful vision that you showed to John as you brought him up into heaven and gave him the heavenly perspective of reality. We thank you that this vision has now been shown to us. The sight and the sound, the vision and the voice, 
it makes it so clear what you're trying to say to us today. It makes it so clear what you're trying to show us. Help us to see with our every uh, seeing, with our spiritual and physical eyes. Help us to truly see that you, our Lord, uh, our, our Lord God, Father, are on the throne. He's on the throne in the center of all rule and all creation. That you, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the slain lamb who not only reveals but fulfills all of your plans and purposes in history. And it's about salvation. It's about bringing people into your kingdom. It's about people bringing into your eternal home. We thank you that next week as we look into chapter 6, we will see what um, happens in history. It's completely part of your purposes and plan. And even our struggles, our sufferings, our hardships, our difficulties, and even the temptations that we face, they're all part of your plan. But we pray that the vision we see today will motivate us, would encourage us to keep conquering, to keep standing firm, to keep worshipping you as you deserve, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep growing in godliness, putting sin to death, to keep serving, to keep being generous uh, in our giving and our efforts for the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name.